All right, I suspect we're getting tonight to the part you've all been waiting for, because we're going to start talking about specific questions and objections and challenges that people have for the Christian faith and how we should respond to those. Uh, so just to remind you how we got to this point, the first night we got together, we said that there is no substitute for an authentic walk with Christ. In fact, there is no better defense of the faith than someone who looks like Jesus, someone who loves like Jesus, someone who is courageous and full of integrity and compassion like Jesus. And if you are a person who is more like Jesus than anybody else around, then that is a better apologetic, that is a better defense for the faith than all the arguments you can come up with. So for any of you who feel like you're intellectually overmatched, if you just follow Christ sincerely, you're doing the most important thing you can do. Then we said you've got to have a wise approach to unbelievers. And that, that boiled down, in, at least in my mind, to at least three things. Number one, stay focused on the gospel. So yes, it is good and it's right to argue and debate. Well, debate, not so much argue. Uh, to discuss issues with unbelievers that are moral, things that are political, things that are uh, those secondary biblical issues like, well, what does the Bible say about this thing that we've discovered in science. And yes, you can have those conversations and you can, you can share your, your viewpoint and, and defend it well, but your goal has to be getting them to the gospel. Your goal has to be uh, saying to them, listen, uh, uh, the bottom line is, who was Jesus? Did He come and die for your sins? Did He rise again? You need to make that decision. This is you talking to your friend. You need to decide who Jesus was and what He did because if Jesus isn't who I believe He was, then none of what I believe about anything else matters. So keep, keep the focus on the gospel. Number two, be committed to long-term relationships. What I keep trying to say is a lot of us, people my age, especially people my age and older, were raised in such a way we were trained to believe that if you've got a good way of presenting the gospel, you can go up to any unbeliever and you can share that gospel presentation and there's a good chance they will become a Christian that very moment. And I'm not saying that never happens anymore. I'm saying it's a lot less likely to happen these days. Now it's much more likely that you're going to have to spend a lot of time with someone. You're going to have to break down their defense. They're going to have to see in you something they don't see in other people. Uh, remember the, the whole idea of the elephant and the rider. You've got to appeal to their elephant, their emotional side, and you've got to get their elephant to change sides. You've got to get them to decide, hey, you're not, like it. You're, you're not, you're not what I thought Christians were like. You've shown me something new. That takes time. And then third, you have to be ready to make all your conversations fruitful. In those relationships with unbelievers, you'll have those opportunities to talk about spiritual matters, maybe even to share the gospel. In order to make those conversations fruitful, you need to know what they believe. You have to at least have had the respect and the, and the understanding to listen to their viewpoint and see where they're coming from. How did they, how did they get to that point? Did they start off Christian and go, go this way, or did they start off in another faith or with no faith at all? What brought them to this point? What do you already agree with them on? And then based on all of that, you have to say, okay, what is the best thing, the best one thing I can try to convince them of in this conversation? Instead of just thinking you're going to change their whole life in 15 minutes, say, okay, if I can get them from here this far away from God to maybe this far away from God, then that's, a, that's something. If I can just get them to discard one of their doubts, then that's something. So uh, what do I hope to accomplish? Because from tonight 
until Thanksgiving, Lord willing, and maybe beyond, we're going to be talking about how to have confidence in the truth. Uh, what, how do we respond when we are asked these questions, these objections, these challenges to faith? So what am I hoping to accomplish? No, I don't think that I'm going to make you experts in this in one night. I'm not an expert in this, okay? I don't think I am at all. I had to do a lot of studying just to prepare these, so that shows I'm not an expert. Uh, but what I'm hoping to accomplish is three things. First of all, I wanna give you confidence that the truth is on our side. So when someone hits you with questions that you can't answer, your immediate thought isn't, well, I guess there's no answer to that question. There probably is. You just, it's, there's nothing, there's no, it's no sign of weakness to say to someone, you know, you make some really strong points and those are things I've never really considered. If you'll give me a few days, I'll think about them and come back to you. Nothing wrong with that at all. And that's what I'm hoping to show you in these next, in these, uh, in these lessons from here till Thanksgiving. Uh, secondly, I want to, I'm assuming that some of you are probably in some of these relationships right now with people who are saying some of these things. Sharon, I think, has a schedule of, of the rest of this, and so you can look at the topics that are coming up, and you can see, oh, well, this is something that my nephew has said to me, or this is something my roommate thinks, or this is something my professor said in college. What, do I sh what should I say? And maybe, if I do my job, I'll give you some fuel that you can go back to them and say, you know, you're always saying this. Have you ever thought about it this way? Maybe, and I'm not going to be upset if this isn't the case, but if you know that person well enough and you think it would be helpful, you could even send them a link to this talk and say, hey, here's another viewpoint. Watch this and tell me what you think. And then third, I want, I want to help those of you who want to dig a little deeper to, to show you some resources you can use to chase this down even further. So let me just right off the top suggest a couple of books. These are the books that have helped me the most in getting this whole study together. And they are The Reason for God by Tim Keller. This is on your sheet. And Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. Um, very excellent books. I love them both. McLaughlin is a young British woman. Tim Keller is in his 70s and an old white guy. So, you know, two different perspectives, but, um, but both excellent. I do need to say this, though. It's for a certain kind of thinker. I'm not going to say a deeper thinker because there are different kinds of intelligence. There are people that can ace an SAT but can't put on a shirt without missing a button every single time. You know what I'm talking about. This is for, uh, let me put it this way. If you went to college and when you were in college, you tended to prefer and enjoy the classes that don't lead to a wealthy, successful career, you know, literature and history and philosophy, you know, those kinds of classes. That's me. I was that guy then these are the books that, that are probably written on your wavelength. If, on the other hand, you were more, no, I want to do the things that make me money, that, you know, where I can fix problems, that I can do some good in the world, you may read these and go, okay, this is over my head. doesn't mean you're dumb. It just means that's not the way you're wired. But the person you're talking to, they may be wired that way. Consider that. Consider uh, taking them one of these books and saying, hey, let's read this together. This isn't my thing, but I'll bite the bullet for you. Let's read this together and just talk about it after each chapter. That's a, that's a good way to approach this. Now, if the person you're talking to is what I would call an ordinary person, not somebody who is into high-flying philosophy, uh, I recommend the, the case books by Lee Strobel. You've probably heard of The Case for Christ. That's his classic, but he's written dozens of others. Case for Creation, The Case for Hope, The Case for Heaven, The Case for Faith, 
The case for miracles, the case for grace, the case for Christmas, and probably some more that I didn't see. Lee Strobel was an investigative reporter for a Chicago newspaper, and then he met Jesus. If you want to see his life story, it's on Netflix right now. Um, and his books are written in the style of a reporter for a wide audience to convince. And those are good books to give people uh, who maybe aren't interested in a philosophical argument, but they want to see, why do you believe this way? So I have most of these, including those top two, if you want to come by my office and look through them before you order them. I was going to say go to the bookstore, but that's rarer and rarer these days. So let's get to our topic. I totally butchered some of the grammar in this next sentence, or these, this next quote, so let me just say it the way I meant to say it. Some unbelievers say Christians are arrogant to believe that their faith is true and other faiths are not. Not only that, Christians are a huge source of division in society, and if they don't stop insisting that their God is the one true God, there will never be peace on earth. Now, you've probably heard some version of that argument. What, what do they suggest instead? There's a couple of different camps. One camp says, well, the fact that there are all these different religions, that's basically proof that there's no God. And all these different religions, that's proof that it's all made up. Now, I'll just tell you that's a small group that thinks that way, because in spite of all the hue and cry about atheism, the, the number of actual atheists on earth is relatively small, and it's not growing. So you're not going to hear this from many people, but I will say the people who do think this way are really hard to convince. It's hard to get their elephant to switch teams. Because when you get to the point of saying, I am an atheist, that becomes your identity. That becomes very important to your conception of yourself. And for them to even consider changing their mind would mean, I have to decide that these people that I've always thought were totally stupid and were the worst thing on earth might actually be right about something. And that's really difficult. I'm not telling you this to discourage you, but just to tell you, it's hard to reason with a confirmed atheist. Don't be surprised if a couple of conversations don't go well. But here's something you could say. Here's something you could say. So ask them, okay, so imagine that you've, you're walking along the beach and you find this huge, intricate sandcastle. And there's this crowd of people standing around looking at it. And you say, who built this? And a guy steps forward and says, I built it. And a woman steps up and says, no, you didn't, I did. And a third guy steps up and says, no, y'all didn't, I did. And on and on it goes until like 15 different people have claimed credit for the sandcastle. Now, what is probably true is that one of those people built the sandcastle. What's definitely not true is that nobody built the sandcastle and the winds and the waves just kind of constructed it on its own, right? Can we all agree on that? So just because there are a lot of different religions that all claim to be true doesn't, isn't proof that one of them isn't true, you see? Just because a lot of people claim that something's true and they all disagree doesn't mean that one of them isn't right. All right, now here's where we're going to spend most of our time because most people who think that, uh, that all religions are the same, 
they have the opposite viewpoint. Instead of saying all religions are false, they say, well, all religions are basically true, or at least most of them. Basically, all the major world religions lead to the same place. I just raise your hand if you've ever heard some version of that. Right, that is really, really common. And the reason it's common is because it just sounds so right to our society, to our culture. It sounds, it sounds perfect. It sounds like, you remember that Coke commercial? I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. Okay, that's all I'm gonna sing. But that's what, it, that's what it reminds me of, this idea, if we could just get everybody in a room to talk things out, then every, all our problems would be solved. Yeah, just give them a Coke and a smile, right? That's all they need. Uh, if personally, Dr. Pepper works better on me, but uh, you know, if you could just get all these, all these religions to sit down in a room and talk things out, they'd realize they all basically agree. And again, that sounds so beautiful and peaceful. Let me give you five reasons why it actually doesn't make any sense at all. The first one is it's not humble or tolerant. That's the main reason it's such a popular belief is people who say that feel like they're being very humble and respectful towards all faiths, being very tolerant of everybody's viewpoint, but the truth is it's not. It's the opposite. It's a very condescending viewpoint. So here's what I compare it to. So if you were babysitting a group of kids, you were babysitting somebody else's kids and you're at their house and the kids get into this argument about which one of them the dog likes the most. And one, you know, the oldest says, well, I think the dog likes me the best because I give him scraps when mom's not looking. And, and then the sister says, well, I think the dog's like, dog likes me the best because I take him outside to play more than any of you. And the, and the little brother says, well, I think he likes me best because when, when nobody's looking, he comes to me. He comes to me and rolls over on his back so I can scratch his belly. And they're getting animated and they're getting loud and they're getting, you know, teary-eyed over this. And finally you break in and say, hey, we can't know which one of you the dog loves. Let's just all agree the dog loves all of you. Now that makes sense if you're babysitting kids, but that's exactly how you're treating the religions of the world. You're saying, listen, we can't really know what God is like, so let's just all agree that God is whatever you say he is. And you see how condescending that is. You're talking to people who've built their lives on a particular religious faith and telling them you're essentially a child. Now, I don't want you to beat your friend over the head with this, but help them to see, listen, please don't go up to a devout Muslim or an Orthodox Jew or, or a devout Hindu or even a fundamentalist Christian and say this. They will not respond well. Just be warned, you're not being as humble and tolerant as you think. Number two, it can't be true because the major world religions are mutually exclusive. If you take even the, just look at the Wikipedia version of the belief systems, you'd see they can't all be true. For instance, who is God? What is God like? You talk to a Jew and they'll say there is one God. You talk to a Christian, they'll say, yes, there is one God, but he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that Son, Jesus Christ, came to earth and died for our sins, rose again the third day. A Muslim steps forward and says, yes, there is one God, but this idea that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's polygamy, that's a, not polygamy, that's, a, yeah, right? Polytheism, yeah, thank you, thank you. Somebody's been reading Reader's Digest, so uh, word of the month. Yeah, that's, that's polytheism, and, and, and yeah, there's one God, and to say that God came to earth in the form of a man, well, that's blasphemy. Yes, Jesus, 
Jesus did live a good life and, and, and he was called up to heaven, but he did not die for our sins. And then the, the Hindu comes along and says, you're wrong. There's, there's thousands of gods. There's more gods than you can possibly count. And the Buddhist comes along and says, I don't even think God is a thing. It's, it's, it's not something personal. It's just sort of a force out there. How can all of those be true? They can't. About something as fundamental as the nature of God, they all disagree. You can't literally think they can all be true. If one is true, then the rest are wrong. Number three, and this, is, this takes a little more, a little more time to, to sink in, but if all paths are equally valid, then you can't tell somebody their morals are wrong. Now let me explain what I mean by that. So if your friend is saying, well, all faiths lead to the same place, just ask her, okay, imagine go up to a man who's an Orthodox Jew or a devout Muslim, and you say, okay, what you need to do is you need to start giving women equal rights. You need to let women drive and vote and dress any way they want to dress and essentially do anything that men can do and see how that goes. And that, that Orthodox Jew or that Muslim is gonna say, how dare you tell me what to believe? This is based on a religious, uh, deeply held belief based on the teachings of my faith. How can you tell me that it's wrong? Well, what is she gonna say? Well, it's my deeply held belief that women are equal to men. So you're saying your deeply held belief is superior to my deeply held belief. That sounds an awful lot like one religion trying to convert another religion. See, it's only when you say that, that if you say that all religions are equal, then we have no ground upon which to disagree with someone's morality. All right. Number four, Christianity is based on a historical truth claim. So the way I look at it is people who want to believe that all religions are the same. They want to think that all the religions of the world are like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. And if you just put all the pieces together, you get the perfect image of God. Well, that sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Problem is, Christianity is the piece that doesn't fit. Because as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Christianity is not based on some guy went into a cave and came out weeks later having seen God. Or some guy found golden tablets and there was the revelation of God. Or some guy went away and communed with nature and came back with a vision of who God is. This, that's not what Christianity is. Because you can't prove or disprove that. Jesus, Christianity is about, did Jesus actually die and rise again the third day? It all hinges on that. It is based on a historical fact. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then Christianity crumbles. But Christ has been raised, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. I saw him myself, and I was one of 500 other people who are all still alive as I'm writing this. You can go check with them anytime you want. And that means, and that, means that Jesus Christ's death changes everything, and he's coming back someday to rule the world. You have to decide whether you believe that or not. Christianity does not fit into a puzzle with the rest of the religions of the world. And then number five, Jesus clearly didn't believe that all the religions are true. That's kind of related to the first point, but I, I, I added this because I wanted to share with you something many of you have already heard, but C.S. Lewis's argument. C.S. Lewis, of course, did not grow up Christian, uh, grew up in England as an unbeliever, um, and then it's a great story. I'll, I'll tell you the whole details another time, but was converted in part by 
uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, the, the author of the, uh, the Lord of the Rings series. And he came to faith in Christ, and just because he was already such a smart man, coming to faith meant he was able to take that intellect and just write some of the best books about defending your faith that have ever been written. And one of his famous arguments is the liar, lunatic, or Lord argument, which is Jesus was one of three things. You know, based on the things he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who lives and believes in me will never die. I'm the door. I am the good shepherd. Uh, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, okay, nobody says that unless they're one of three things. Either they're a total liar, a con man, who's just out to get as much power and money for himself as he can, basically a Jim Jones, a David Koresh, or a lunatic, as... as uh, as Lewis memorably put it, along the lines of a person who says, I'm a poached egg, right? So someone who clearly doesn't have a grasp of reality. I, I met a homeless man a couple weeks ago who swore to me that he walked on water all the time. So, you know, that kind of thing. Or he was exactly who he said he was. What he couldn't possibly be is what your friend wants him to be, which is a good, enlightened teacher. Because good, enlightened teachers don't say th such things about themselves. Good, enlightened teachers don't convince people to follow them to the death. Jesus, you have to make a decision about who he was. Now, the rest of our time, we're going to talk about some of the ways they might respond to what you've said. And you may have heard some of these, and if you haven't, you will hear some of these. So the first one I list is, you're only a Christian because of where you were born. You, you think Christianity is true, but that's only because you were born in America. If you'd been born in India, you'd be a Hindu. If you were born in Iran or Saudi Arabia, you'd be a Muslim. If you were born in China, you'd be a Buddhist. The problem with that argument is you can say the same to your friend. Ask your friend at that point, okay, so how would you describe yourself? And she might say, well, I'm a humanist, or I'm, I'm just a really intelligent person, or I'm just a person who, I'm an agnostic, or I'm a person who... Uh, who who thinks very tolerantly towards all people. However she describes herself, ask her, well, if you'd been born in Iran, or India, or Saudi Arabia, or China, would you be that? Is that what you would have grown up to be? Well, probably not. So does that mean that your beliefs are wrong? Because the truth is, there basically weren't any people who thought like you anywhere on earth except America and Europe within the last 50 years. So does that mean your beliefs are untrue? That's how you should respond. Now, second thing they might say. It's arrogant to try to convert someone else to your religion. I know we've all heard this one. You can believe what you want to believe, just keep it to yourself. Just don't try to convince me of it. The problem is, if someone is trying to tell you, you shouldn't be exclusive. You shouldn't try to convert people. Well, aren't you trying to convert me to your belief system? A belief system that says that all religions are the same and everyone should be left alone and that if it's the exclusivity of religion that causes all the problems. Aren't you trying to convert me to your viewpoint? Isn't that arrogant of you? And by the way, don't say it in a, in a harsh way, but it, it, that you have to help them to see the inconsistency of their viewpoint. So Re Re Rebecca McLaughlin makes another point on this that I really think is good. She said, just imagine 
you're a doctor, this is her example, you're a doctor who specializes in breast cancer, and there's a woman sitting in your office, and you know that she's got a mass that needs to be removed, and you know that you can do surgery that will remove that mass, and very, very likely, she'll never have cancer again. The problem is, she doesn't want, she doesn't want the surgery. She just doesn't want to go under the knife. She said, I'll just take my vitamin D and hope for the best. Is it arrogant for you as a doctor to try to persuade her to get that surgery? I mean, ask your friend this. And if her answer is, well, of course not, because I know that this will save her life, you need to ask your friend, okay, if you believed what I believe about the gospel, that it is the hope of the world, that people who receive it are saved forever, and not only that, it changes the world for the better. If you believed what I believe, would you keep it to yourself? Because the truth is, if we as Christians don't try to convince people of this, it means one of two things. It either means we don't actually believe what we say we believe, or we don't care about other people. So if we're decent people at all, and we believe what the Bible says, we have to try to convince people. All right, here's the next one. Believe what you want, but leave your religious beliefs out of the public square. We hear this one a lot. Separation of church and state. Well, absolutely. I'm glad that the, the state doesn't have domain over our church. I, I'm, I'm glad we don't have a state church. Uh, I believe in that. that you know, that's one of the foundations of, of being a Baptist. But that doesn't mean that we can't bring our religious beliefs with us when we discuss political, moral, social issues. Now, I, I list this quote because it's in, in Tim Keller's book. Stephen Carter is a prof professor at Yale Law School and a Christian. And I like the way he says this. And by the way, if you like this quote, that'll tell you what that book is like, all right? If you read this quote and you think, okay, that's a bunch of word salad, you can probably avoid it. So he says, Efforts to craft a public square from which religious conversation is absent, no matter how thoughtfully worked out, will always in the end say to those of organized religion that they alone, unlike everybody else, must enter public dialogue only after leaving behind that part of themselves that they may consider the most vital. It's like saying, it's like saying to somebody, okay, we're having a debate about political issues. You can take part. But if I hear you say anything that a Democrat or a Republican would say, then I won't listen. You can't, you can't come with any of that stuff. You gotta come up with completely original stuff that you've made up on your own. You can't, yeah, no, nope, I heard, I heard Tucker Carlson say that, so you can't say it. No, 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 I heard, I heard Joe Biden say that, you can't say, no. They would say, well, how dare you? This, this is my worldview, this is, so I happen to agree with some people who are part of my party. Why can't I bring that with me? Well, we as Christians, should have the same right. So just as a way of illustrating this, and again, I get this from Tim Keller's book. He said, imagine there's two people and they're arguing, and one of them says, I believe in a country as affluent as ours, nobody should ever go hungry. And the second person says, I disagree. If people can't find their own way to feed their kids, then they should just starve and get out of the way and stop holding back the human race. The sooner they starve to death, the better off we'll all be. Now, I think you and I would all agree that second guy's a jerk. But if we don't bring our biblical worldview with us, how can we prove he's wrong? How can we prove he's wrong? And that's just his viewpoint. That's just what he believes. What can we say to disprove him? 
The only way we can disprove him is by saying all human beings are created equal. Oh yeah? Why do you believe that? Well, because it's in God's Word. We have to be allowed to say that. It doesn't mean that other people have to agree with us simply because it's in our book. But we have to be able to say, as a Christian, I am taught that all human beings are of equal value before God. And therefore, whether they're poor, whether they're disabled, whether they are elderly, whether they are unborn, they deserve a chance for life. And that's not theocracy, and that's not uh, combining church and state. That's simply saying, this is a value that's important to me, just like your values are important to you, and I have the right to share them and try to persuade people of them. All right, so the next, the next thing they'll say is, so do you think that all religions are evil? And, and I think you need to be careful with how you answer this. First of all, I don't think it does any good to say, I think the devil created all other religions beside Christianity. Now you may believe that, and that may actually be true. I don't know. I think the better answer is, no, I think all human beings were created with a desire, an inborn desire to know and worship God. And people who are atheists are going against their nature. I think we're all created with that desire to, to know and worship Him, so it's not surprising that people all over the world have tried to find ways to get to God. And I, I don't know whether the founders of those other religions were sincerely trying to seek God or whether they were con men. That's not my call. That's something I'll find out on Judgment Day. I can say that in other religions, I can find things that I agree with. I can find beautiful things, teachings, moral teachings that I agree with in all those other religions. And that's not surprising either because God created us in His image, and so we have this innate sense of right and wrong. And I can acknowledge that there are people in other religions who are good people. There, there are people who are in other religions that are kinder and braver and more compassionate than most Christians I know, including me. And, and that's okay for me to admit because my faith doesn't teach that only the good people get saved. My faith teaches that only sinners get saved. So it's not surprising that there are, some, there are some people who do incredibly brave and courageous and beautiful things in these other faiths, and I can celebrate that, and I can admire those people, and I can say thank God that He created that person. I, I remember um, years ago when my university, University of Houston, hired a new president, and she's a Hindu. And a, a member of my church at the time said, does it bother you that president of your university isn't a Christian? And I said, I don't know that any of the previous ones were Christians, honestly. <laughs> And the fact is, she's done a fantastic job. I mean, she's raised the profile of my university more than any president we've ever had. I can celebrate that without saying, well, therefore, her faith must be true. My faith is based on who Jesus was, not on the behavior of individuals. So no, other religions aren't evil, but I know who Jesus is. I know how he's how to get to God. And then, don't you agree that being exclusive about religion causes division and violence? Now, we're going to talk about this in greater detail next week, but let me just say this. First of all, and I hope you hear me say this, it does no good to say no to this question because the evidence is too clear. 
Religion causes an immense amount of division and violence in the world, including Christianity. The history is there for, the, for all to see. Uh, they, they have countless stories that they could bring up from history and from current events of Christians doing terrible things in the name of Christianity. But you can also point out that in the last century, the worst division and violence in the world were caused by government systems that tried to ban religion entirely. Soviet Russia, Maoist China, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people died. And then when you throw Nazi Germany in there, which was a, a government that tried to manipulate and control religion instead of promoting it, there's another millions and millions there. Which all that proves is not that atheists are, are, are evil and should be exterminated. No, it, it, but it proves that it's not religion that makes people kill each other. People are broken. We're bent towards selfishness and division and violence, and human beings who are motivated enough will use any excuse, whether it's religion, whether it's politics, whether it's uh, money, or, or anything else you want to name. But you need to also say, and this is the important part. Yes, Christians have done terrible things. Yes, you can turn on the news any given week and there's a good chance you'll hear a story of Christians doing terrible things. But you can point out, yes, that's true, but they're only doing those things because they are explicitly going away from the teachings of Jesus. They're, they're doing those things when they're hateful, when they're bigoted, when they're divisive, when they're violent, it's because they're choosing to reject what Jesus said. So the answer to the question, or the answer to the problem is not eliminate Christianity. I would say if those people actually started to practice Christianity, the world would be a better place. And challenge, somebody who says that to you, say, let me just challenge you to read Matthew 5 through 7. Just those three chapters. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And ask yourself, if people started actually living that way, would the world be better or worse? And if they say, well, obviously it'd be a better place, you'd say, well, then the problem is not Christianity. The problem is people. People who don't live, especially those who claim to be Christians, what they say. I think it's important, and I know some of you might disagree with me on this. I think it's important if somebody comes to you and says, uh, hey, I heard that uh, preacher so-and-so said this, and you know it's not biblical. I think it's important for you as a Christian to say, that's wrong. That is wrong. Or when a newspaper report comes out that some church harbored sexual predators, instead of saying, oh, no, 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 we've we got to close ranks, we're all Christians, we need to just you know, keep, keep things in-house, I think it's important for us as Christians to stand up and be the first to point the finger and say, those people need to go to jail. Because the world needs to see that's not what Christianity is. We need to be one, the ones that say that. Just like we want Muslims to stand up when a terrorist act is, is committed and say, I denounce this, we need to be the same. We need to hold ourselves to the same standard. That is, again, part of defending the faith. And then finally, they will say, well, then how can God only allow one group into heaven? And I hear this a lot. Why is God such a mean God that he would only allow this one group into heaven when there's clearly all these different groups that are trying to get to him? Why does he just pick one and say, okay, this is the one I like and everybody else, everybody else can go to hell? Well, first, and this is not what you should say to their, your friend, but we all need to understand what a recent and very narrow kind of way of thinking that is. 
I mean, a hundred years ago, no one on earth thought that way. And in most of the world today, if you're not in Western Europe or America, the question is not, why is only one group getting in? The question is, why is anybody getting in? The question is not, why does God only save a few? The question is, why would God save anybody? See, it's only us Westerners, Americans and Western Europeans, who have this entitled opinion that, well, of course God loves me. Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he want me in heaven with him? Most people throughout history have understood differently. They've understood that God is up there and I'm not, and it would take a miracle for me to get to him. Now, again, don't say that to your friend. That's not going to help them at all. What you do need to say is, you've got it all wrong. God's not saving one group. There, I'm sure there are plenty of people who identify as Christian who are not really saved. Calling yourself a Christian, going to church, going through religious rituals, none of that saves you. Jesus saves you. So God's not saving one group and forgetting the rest. God is on a rescue mission. And it's a rescue mission so important to him that he was willing to become a human being and die to make it happen. And he is saving as many as possible. He's saving people of every culture, every language group, every, every, uh, every nation you can imagine. And you can show them that it's working. And I've given you a couple of the names of a couple of articles you can look up if you want, but you can tell them that in the Muslim world, people are coming to faith in Christ through dreams and visions of Jesus. I mean, one day a, a man is a devout Muslim. He goes to bed that night. He has a dream. Jesus appears to him. He wakes up the next day and thinks, I've got to read the New Testament. Then he becomes a believer. This is happening all throughout the Middle East. In Iran, for instance, over the last decade, as many as 5 million, but at least 1 million people have become Christians, even though the government doesn't recognize it. Uh, you can talk about how China, in China, even though the, the government is doing its best to suppress Christianity, the church is growing so fast, one Chinese scholar believes by the end of this decade, by the end of this decade, there will be more Christians in China than there are in the United States. Think about that for a minute. And that's with the communist government doing its best to stop it. And that's not the only, those aren't the only places. I mean, you know, talk to Jair back there about how fast the gospel is growing in Brazil or other parts of South America or uh, Sub-Saharan Africa or other places in Asia. So God is rescuing people. This idea that, that God just chose this narrow little group and said, I like these people and the rest can go is, is patently false. God is saving whoever wants to be saved. And that is the truth. That's the God we serve. That is what he does. So I hope that helps. Hope that gives you some fuel. If you have uh, any, anything you want to talk about with me afterwards, I'll be here for a little while. Um, but thank you all for coming. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you are who you are and that you love human beings who you've created in your image, who you sent your son to die for, and your Holy Spirit continues to pursue. Help us, O oh Lord, to love them that way too. Father, I thank you that you created, that you gave us the gospel, and it is, it is the good news that produces salvation for all. I pray, Lord, that we would stand strong through it. It's not popular in our culture to insist that we found the way or to try to tell somebody how to be saved, but I pray that we would be bold enough and humble enough at the same time to compellingly share that with those who need to hear
Lord, give us wisdom. I know there are people in this room who are in the midst of relationships that they are worried about and conversations, ongoing conversations they don't know how to handle. I pray that you would give them confidence and give them wisdom and help them to represent you well. Lord, I pray that we'd see many people saved in the days to come. For it's in Jesus' holy name. Amen.